from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. I think it's rare for a biography to be so well written that almost every aspect of a figure's life is detailed. My guest today, Jonathan Eig, seems to have done just that and managed to keep my attention for more than 600 pages. Jonathan is the author of five other nonfiction books as well as four children's books. He was also a reporter. His upcoming book, King, A Life, chronicles the rise of Martin Luther King Jr. from his childhood in Atlanta, Georgia, where his father served as a preacher at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, to his time organizing the civil rights movement from the Montgomery bus boycott to the March on Washington. Today, we'll talk about King's education, the father-son relationship, the events of the civil rights movement, and King's legacy. Ike's book will be published on the 16th of May. It's Wednesday, May 3rd, and this is News Nerds. Jonathan Ige is the author of the new book, King, A Life. He's the author of five other nonfiction books, including Ali, A Life, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig, and The Birth of the Pill. He's joining us now to talk about the book. He has also written for uh, newspapers, including his hometown newspaper. He's also a former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Ezra. So this book is the first book to chronicle the life of Martin Luther King Jr. in a while. And it it takes kind of a new approach to writing about him because of the uh, some some recent evidence and tapes and interviews that you got access to in researching the book. So how did you research this book? I began by interviewing everybody I could because I realized that there were still dozens of people around who knew Martin Luther King Jr. pretty well and that um, they were getting up there in years. So I I've made that a priority. And I did dozens of interviews with people, most of them in person before the pandemic hit. At the same time, there was a massive trove of new documents, as you mentioned, including FBI documents, including you know wiretaps from phones, King's phone, his office phone, his home phone, phones of some of his closest associates. And that was just the, the tip of the iceberg, really. There were lots of new archival materials. But the big thing I wanted to do with this book was try to humanize him, because um, there have been a lot of books written about Martin Luther King Jr., not that many biographies in recent years. Um, this is the first complete biography in decades. But what I really wanted to do was remind people that he was a person and not just a uh, monument and a national holiday. There is an interesting story that you start the book with, which doesn't have anything to do with um, Martin Luther King Jr. It's it's two generations in the past. And it's really an interesting story to start the book with that tells people maybe how the King family thought and why they thought what they thought. Can you tell the story that you start the book with? Sure. When when Martin Luther King uh, Jr.'s father, known as Mike King at that point, was a young man, uh, when he was a boy, really, about 11 or 12 years old, he was beaten up by a white mill owner in his town, in his hometown of Stockbridge, Georgia. And when he went home and, and told his mother what happened, his mother dragged him back to the mill and, and attacked this white mill owner. And it was a stunning, really incredibly courageous moment that this is, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, around 1910, Black people were not considered uh, equal citizens at that time and could be punished without fear of reprisal. And uh, she was really risking her life to do that, to, to stand up for her son. 
And it was an incident that really um, weighed heavily in uh, Martin Luther King Sr.'s memory. He would remember that all his life and talk about that. And, and as, as just a few years later, he would leave Stockbridge on his own, walk out of Stockbridge and, and hop a train to Atlanta and start to build a new life. So the, the Kings, long before they became famous, long before the civil rights movement, the Kings um, were fighting for themselves, were fighting for whatever kind of justice they could get. And I think that's a really important thing to remember that the civil rights movement didn't begin in the 60s. There were people like King's father and grandmother and grandfather who were doing the best they could and standing up for their rights whenever they had a chance. So um, several years later, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. inherits basically a role at um, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where the family uh, was then was then based. And, you know, MLK was was raised as a, the son of a of the church leader. So what was the story of his upbringing? And was that an influential part of, of what he later became? There's so many reasons that Martin Luther King Jr. becomes Martin Luther King Jr., that he can become this exceptional leader, that he can become this really, in my view, one of the greatest Americans of all time. And it all begins really in Atlanta, where he's born, and, and his conditions are so unusual. A lot of people who knew him said that he wasn't really scarred by racism the way a lot of younger people were at that time, because he had this um, kind of idealized world and this and this very religious world in which he grew up. He was born in um, a neighborhood called Sweet Auburn, where there were thriving Black businesses. His father was the leader of a big church. So he grew up almost you know, with a princely kind of a status and um, also grew up with, with impressive and interesting guests at the dinner table all the time, people who were coming in through town and and visiting the church. Uh, he was expected to behave a certain way, but he was also raised not just with, with the Baptist church and not just with God uh, and prayer, but with a sense that, that the church and the, and the prayer was meant to apply to our culture as well, that it was meant to lead us toward a better world, that, that God promised something more and that people were going to have to work to get it. So, you know, his father was a great activist in his own right. His father was you know, active in the NAACP and negotiating with city leaders to get more schools for Black students, all kinds of issues. So King grew up in this really incredible bubble, really, that gave him the opportunity and the privilege to um, to think about what he could do next, sort of inherit that 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 responsibility from his father. And one of the one of the most interesting relationships that I think you you write about in the book is is the relationship between the two Martin Luther Kings. It, it's a relationship that I think changes over time as both of them find their place in the civil rights movement. And one of the most strained times of this relationship, I think, is when Martin Luther King Jr. says that maybe he won't become a, a, a pastor or a minister or any part of the church. Maybe he'll become a teacher or, or something along those lines. Um, education played a very important part in Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. Um, he went to Morehouse, which was uh, African-American only school in Atlanta. And then he went to Crozer, uh, which was, uh, where was that again? That was in uh, it's in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania religious school, seminary, Chester, Pennsylvania, right? 
Right. And and then after that, he yes. went to um, Boston University. So education was a large influence on King. That's another possible reason that he became who he became. Can you talk about that influence? No question that King took his education very seriously. He skipped a few grades in elementary school. So he was one of the youngest people on campus by the time he got to Morehouse, 16 years old, surrounded by much older students and really holding his own and very popular. He was just a really outgoing kid. Everybody called him Mike at that point, he, even though um, his his father had changed the name to, to Martin Luther. Um, most of his friends still called him Mike. And Mike was a very popular guy on campus and also a very ambitious one. You know, he um, got active in, in campus affairs. He um, sang with, with the choir for a while. And he, at, at Boston University, started sort of a philosophical society where friends would gather and talk about interesting ideas. So um, he took himself very seriously. He was also a lot of fun. People liked hanging out with him. He always had a lot of girlfriends. To your original question, there was always this great push and pull between Daddy King, as he called himself, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. was was incredibly ambitious, but like a lot of us, wanted to sort of rebel a little bit at the same time, wanted to see if he could be more than his father, if he could be different from his father. So for a long time, he, th he thought about maybe becoming a lawyer or um, a doctor, and it wasn't until... Um, really well into his Morehouse career that he that he seemed to settle on on being a preacher. And I don't think Daddy King really was pushing him. Um, in fact, I found a, an unpublished autobiography in which Daddy King talks about wishing that his children would be more financially secure. He wanted them to become, you know, business people, lawyers, um, something that would be more lucrative than than the ministry. What did Martin Luther King Jr.'s siblings pursue? Uh, his sister became a teacher and his brother became a preacher. You know, there weren't that many options available to uh, to women at the time in terms of careers. They certainly couldn't become ministers in the Baptist church. So the teaching um, was um, fairly predictable given the opportunities that were available to his sister. So as everybody knows, King went on to become a preacher and then later a, a, a figure in the civil rights movement. But he did things differently than his father did. There's a big theme of personalism in the book and how he applied personalism to his preaching and activism. What is personalism and why did he identify with that uh, theory? Personalism was a philosophy that King embraced. A lot of people of his of his generation embraced where, you know, God is seen as as something more personal, as something we can relate to almost in a human way, but um, with obviously with all the powers of God. But um, King embraced that in, in part because it, it tied in nicely with his belief in activism, that that the church had a purpose, that that prayer had a purpose, that we were put here on earth to try to work with God in making a better universe. And I think that that was especially resonant in the black church when there were these when the sense that the american society american law was not living up to the ideals of the bible not even living up to the ideals of the constitution that said that all men were created equal and all men as the bible said were created in the in the image of god why are we treating certain people as second class citizens and uh, that became you know a key part of his theology during his schooling at Boston University, he meet, meets Coretta Scott, his, his later wife. Um, did she agree with what he thought at the time? I mean, she was more established at that point in, in activism than he was, but he became the, the figure that everybody knew 
as as Martin Luther King. Did she agree with what he was thinking? And if not, did what she agree with influenced what he saw as as the best way to transition into a better society? They absolutely agreed that they had a responsibility to fight segregation, to fight racism. And it is interesting, as you point out, that um, she had more experience when they met as an activist. And she'd gone to Antioch College and she'd been involved there in, in a number of campus protests. I think that's really what attracted King to, to Coretta. You know, King was dating a lot of women before he met Coretta. She, you know, she was certainly attractive and certainly smart, but many of the others were attractive and smart too. I think King was drawn to her because she had the credentials as a as a civil rights activist, even before we, you know, we, we were really using the term civil rights activist. And I think that she can she pushed him and he really liked that. And, and she would do so all their lives together. In some ways, you know, she was more outspoken on the Vietnam War before he was. I think that that was very attractive to him and that they considered themselves a partnership in their in their crusade for for, you know, for change. So after they uh, leave Boston, they decide that they're going to go to Montgomery, Alabama, instead of Atlanta, which surprised some, but uh, that's where King felt that he should go. They ended up at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where King would become a preacher and really establish himself as not only a very well-respected preacher, but also a very well-respected activist and civil rights leader. And that's really where he began to establish his roots and meet the people that would help him shape his career and help him really uh, identify with Americans. Can you explain how Montgomery influenced his career? I mean, it seems like if he went to Atlanta, he might not have had the career that that everybody knows uh, he did. It's absolutely a case of the right person in the right place at the right time. And um, he didn't want to go to Atlanta because he didn't want to be in his father's shadow. Coretta wasn't crazy about going to Montgomery. You know, she really wanted to have a music career. I think she might have been happy to stay in the North for a little while longer. But King was really determined that he wanted to go back down South and fight Jim Crow, see what he could do to be a part of the movement. Uh, even though the movement was not really a big one yet, he wanted to do his part. And I think it, his plan was really to go down there for a few years and then maybe get a teaching job and, you know, maybe... Uh, work at Morehouse someday and maybe preach and teach. I think he might have been happy as a university president or a university chaplain, but things got in the way, you know, um, he, got, he got down there and almost reluctantly ended up leading the Montgomery bus boycott. And he was chosen not because he was the famous Martin Luther King. He was chosen because uh, he was new in town and he didn't have any enemies yet. And he was considered a good speaker. And they thought that he might be the person to sort of get the crowds fired up and make sure people stayed off those buses. But it was really in some ways lucky that he emerged where he did and when he did, because um, there were plenty of other people who might've ended up in that role. Ralph Abernathy certainly was qualified and would have done a good job. Um, there were others like like E.D. Nixon, who was the head of the local NAACP chapter, who was not a great speaker, but but certainly was respected in the community. So you know, King wasn't looking for this job. He felt compelled to take it. He wasn't looking to become the leader of any movement. He really just wanted to run his church for a little while. He had a new baby. Uh, he and Coretta were just getting established. But the movement sort of called to him. And I think this is the key is that he felt he had an obligation that, you know, his religious beliefs and his, you know, opposition to Southern segregation compelled him to do this, that that he couldn't back down from the from the responsibility. 
You mentioned Ralph Abernathy, who was another civil rights activist and, and minister. I'm looking down to all my notes right here because there's a lot of people that influenced how civil rights came about in America. You mentioned that he felt like he was he was kind of stuck in the role that he played as a civil rights leader. Did he feel that he was stuck there because he had gained the momentum with the United States with United States citizens to carry out civil rights or did he feel that God was telling him to do what he was doing? I think King felt um that he couldn't go back. He couldn't ever step aside because of the responsibility that he was called by God. He really felt like God had spoken to him. At one point, he says, literally, he thought he heard God's voice telling him, I'm, I'm with you. He trusted that it was that it was meant to be. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that we forget is that you know, he did have a choice. He could have led the Montgomery bus boycott and then decided not to move ahead and start the SCLC and take this campaign nationally. And then after he was, you know, his home was bombed and, or when he was stabbed in the chest, uh, when he started receiving death threats, when the FBI started trying to destroy his reputation. And um, all of these things were opportunities where he could have stepped back and he could have said, oh, it's time to let someone else lead for a while or even just take a take a break. He never did because he felt like this was his calling. He was in this strange position, really a unique position where he was not elected to office, but the nation had kind of taken him as as his as 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 a leader they, you know some people called him the black president at the time and people viewed him that way and he took that responsibility very seriously and was willing to risk his life for it uh, you mentioned the SCLC which was the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference which we'll get into later but that was an organization that King helped to create and later helped in the civil rights movement I'm wondering if age had anything to do with his success he was young for basically his whole life. I mean, up until his assassination, he was very, very young. I mean, he could have had so much um, more of a life. Uh, you know, he, he died in 1968. Did age, was age a factor? Did people empathize with somebody who was in their 20s, in their 30s, who was fresh and who had a new perspective, or maybe not a new perspective, but a way to uh, make the perspective of Black Americans easier to understand for white Americans. It's astonishing, really, to think that when King starts leading the Montgomery bus, bus boycott, he's only 26 years old. Um, yeah, he always looked and seemed much older, in part because he dressed conservatively and he handled himself so seriously. And he was a minister, of course, so there's a sense of conservatism around him, this aura of conservatism. But yeah, I think um, he has this great ability to speak to everybody. He doesn't seem too young. He doesn't seem immature, but he seems like he's energetic. He seems like he belongs to a new generation of leaders. He's not one of these, um, you know, guys like you know, uh, Wilkins or A. Philip Randolph, who, who have been around a while, he's, he's saying something new and different, and it seems bolder. Um, you know, he's calling for ordinary people to get out in the streets and march. It's not just about, you know, lobbying Congress or litigating. He's a, he's a really dynamic speaker and, a, and an inspiring figure. At the same time, because he's a, he's a religious figure, because he's, you know, a, a doctor of, of, religious philosophy, he commands respect and the press sees him as this, you know, just this great story. So I think, you know, all these forces come together that really make him the perfect time, perfect person at the perfect time. 
he helps to start the Montgomery bus boycott. And that goes on for about a year um, until leaders recognize that it's not going to stop and that there has to be a solution. And it, it takes a long time. They're very stubborn, both sides, but it happens. But then there's an interesting thing that happens. There's kind of a lull in progress being made towards the rights of Black Americans. I want to talk about some of the challenges that the movement faced. First, was there a re religious divide inside the civil rights movement between uh, different, different, maybe Baptists against um, other parts of the Christian religion? Was that did that happen, or did people recognize that they just had to be unified? I don't think the religious divide was a, was a serious issue because. Um, the church in general was just such a great force for organization. You have to remember that in the in the 50s and early 60s, half of all Americans were in church on Sunday and three quarters of all Americans belonged to a church. So it became this great force for organization and denominations, you know, were, were of course, you know, not always united, but in general, among black people in particular, there was a sense that the church was was the key. And that's why, you know, they called it the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that it was, you know, they were trying to get, it was Southern, it was Christian, and um, it, it really united people around this great cause. And I think that that became essential. But as the, as the movement grew, and as, it, as King worked to expand it beyond Montgomery, you know, he faced challenges. How do you, how do you organize nationally when you're not used to doing it when you don't have experience with that. How do you raise money nationally? And King always felt like he had to raise the money himself virtually, that he had to travel and give a lot of speeches in order to, to raise money. It put a lot of pressure on him. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the Southern uh, Christian leadership part of his career also put a lot of pressure on him. I want to talk about how uh, the, the NAACP um, might have had some problems with what King was doing. Of course, they they agreed with the mission of what he was doing, but they felt that some of what King was doing was taking away from what they were doing themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? The NAACP was the uh, most established and powerful Black activist group in the country, and their lawyers had been hugely influential in, in reshaping American society. It's Certainly Brown versus Board of Education was a massive game changer in American culture and in race in America. And um, I think there was a sense of competition when King arrived on the scene and when he began organizing the SCLC. There was concern that they might compete for money. And the NAACP felt like King never gave the NAACP its proper due, even in the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, King and the and the protesters, the marchers, were successful in fighting for for their rights. But it was ultimately the NAACP that brought the lawsuit that that forced the city to integrate its buses. And you know, Thurgood Marshall would often complain that King got all the credit and didn't deserve it. So there was a there was a tension there, and and King, um, as a result of that, I think struggled a little bit in terms of his relationship with with people like Roy Wilkins, and um, also struggled with with. Uh, raising money for the SCLC because he he was urged not to make it a membership-based organization because then it really would compete directly with the NAACP. King um, really had to build something new from scratch in order to to get his organization going. 
the Montgomery bus boycott may isn't the the clear turning point in the civil rights movement. Uh, I mean, I think it might have been the beginning of the end. But in researching this book, have you found a clear turning point in the civil rights movement? Well, there are many that you could argue you could call, you know, Brown versus Board of Education a turning point. I think Montgomery is really the moment of awakening. That's when people all over the country begin to realize that if we can do it in Montgomery, we can do it elsewhere. And that's when you start to see people thinking about organizing sit-ins, freedom rides, all of that grows out of what King has done and what the people of Montgomery have done in standing up to the white power structure and saying, we're going to force you to, to do something different. We're going to force you to give us our rights. And then people begin thinking about what else they can do, where else they can force things. One of King's friends, Bernard Lafayette, reminded me, called, uh, told me that he, he thought of King as a crowbar, the greatest crowbar ever uh, America had ever made, and that he's, he's prying loose white hold on power. He's prying loose the justice that had been denied for people for a long time. And once you started sticking that crowbar in, in one place after another, you wanted to see what else you could try. Uh, I want to talk about what people think of when, what many people think of when they hear the name uh, Martin Luther King Jr. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom um, was where King delivered his I Have a Dream speech in the 60s. What were the preparations for that event? Well, A. Philip Randolph had been urging for a march on Washington for years. They were convinced that it, this was a time to put more pressure on, on JFK to deliver legislation to curtail segregation in the South. And, and it, it was a moment that was made possible by some of the victories that King had helped bring about in the South. There was a sense that America was really ready and that, that JFK might really be compelled. But JFK was always reluctant to um, step up on civil rights. He had other issues uh, that were more important on his plate. He was afraid of losing votes in the South, white votes in the South, if he came out too aggressively in, on behalf of civil rights. So Randolph, Bayard Rustin, King, and others felt like this March on Washington would be a great way to um, really put more pressure on, on JFK. And they believed that, that they could do it in a peaceful way. They believed that they could create a demonstration that would also offer sort of a vision of what America could be with black and white people coming together in harmony. Many of the other protests that King led had involved violence or had resulted in violence or resulted in arrests. And, and King wanted to make sure this was peaceful. There was a great deal of concern among, you know, the Kennedy administration and among others that, that this would turn into some, some kind of a riot. And King really wanted to prove that this could be um, a peaceful demonstration. Part of, of how you researched this book was from tapes from the FBI. How did they even get involved? Well, J. Edgar Hoover running the FBI, oh, among others, of course, felt like um, the civil rights movement posed a threat to America as as he knew it and as he as he hoped to preserve it, which was as a you know predominantly white Christian power structure. Hoover was especially concerned at first that there were communists and former communists within King's ranks. And, you know, during the Cold War, there was this sense that the communists were trying to overthrow American society and trying to um, destroy democracy. So there was some paranoia there for sure. And King did have, you know, former communists among his advisors, but there was no meaningful communist influence within King's ranks. And, and Hoover gradually understood that and, and had to admit it. Uh, but at the same time, he became obsessed that King was gaining power. He was gaining popularity. Um, it was difficult for, for Hoover and others to see King getting so much respect. 
And then when Hoover began to delve into King's private life, began tapping phones and discovered that King was having affairs with women, then Hoover became obsessed with that part of the story and, and with uh, bringing down King. He, he, it, it offended him that, that King was getting so much respect when Hoover considered him to be you know, a fraud in that way. As a, as a man of faith and as a man of religious conviction. So um, the FBI, especially right after the March on Washington, really set out to try to damage King, to try to undercut his work, destroy his reputation. And they ordered wiretaps on his phones, on the phones of his advisors, and began installing um, electronic surveillance devices in the hotel rooms where he was staying, gathering information that they hoped they could use to destroy him. And a lot of people were were kind of out to destroy the civil rights movement and what King stood for. Was there a moment when King became aware that his activism might eventually cost him his life? Well, even before he knew that the FBI was after him, of course, you know, his home was bombed in 1956 in Montgomery. He was stabbed in the chest at a book signing in Harlem. He received death threats all the time. He became well aware that that uh, he might not live. And his father begged him to give it up. His father said, it's, you know, it's just not worth it. You've got a wife and children. He ended up, you know, he had four children, but he felt like he couldn't step back, that that he felt a calling, you know, from God, that this was his responsibility and that he wasn't, and if he, and if he had to give his life for it, he was willing to do that. I want to kind of circle back to what MLK um, Sr. had to say about his son's accomplishments he had become a very successful civil rights leader and preacher. He had founded um, numerous organizations to help uh, carry out his mission. Um, he had finished his preaching in Montgomery and returned to Atlanta, where he preached with his father at Ebenezer. Did King Sr.'s perspective on his son change through his short life? Daddy King was was always um, in a bit of a power struggle with his son, but he was incredibly proud. You could just see how much he beamed with pride at what his son had accomplished. You have to remember, this is a kid who grew up as a sharecropper. Daddy King came from a, a family that had nothing, and his father had been an alcoholic and had been abusive, in part because he'd been driven to, to just such fury by white landowners taking advantage of him. So for Daddy King to see his son grow up to one of the most influential men in the world, someone who was using his responsibilities, using his powers for the, for the good of society, you know, winning a Nobel Peace Prize, meeting with presidents, just incredible pride. Daddy King and, and, and his wife, you know, King's mother and father were incredibly proud of him. And when, when he came back, one of the things I love is you, when you listen to the sermons that King delivered, King Jr. delivered at Ebenezer, you can hear his father, you know, chanting, cheering him on. You know, he would often say, make it plain, make it plain when King was speaking, because King you know, tended to give these more highfalutin sermons with a lot of philosophy thrown in there. And, and Daddy King was more of a, of a plain preacher. So Daddy King would sit beside his son while his son was in the pulpit and would, would tell, make it plain. And you could just see that father-son dyna father dynamic playing out in a really beautiful way. Was King ever really satisfied with what he had done? No, I think not. I think he was very frustrated and, and sad. He struggled emotionally. He struggled with depression. Um, some people would say that he might have shown signs of being a manic depressive, but he felt like he said it many times in the last year or two of his life that his dream that he talked about uh, the March on Washington that turned into a nightmare, that America was becoming more segregated in many ways, that violence, racial violence in the North in particular was more pronounced. 
that we were engaged in this horrible war with Vietnam that was killing people for no reason. He felt like his his, his work had not um, succeeded. So rather than taking a victory lap or resting on his laurels, and this is still amazing to me, he really doubled down. He decided that he was just going to try harder to call attention to these big issues that he was going to fight against the Vietnam War. He was going to fight against not just racism and segregation, but against poverty and inequality too. And in the last year of his life, he planned this poor people's campaign, which he wanted to basically um, conduct a massive sit-in in Washington, D.C., where people would be, for would be forced to deal with them, would be forced to address what was going on and, and think about the bigger issues that you know the, he felt like the Bible commanded him to pay attention to. Do you think his workload contributed to his his emotional and, and mental state? There's no question that he was he was overworked, that he was exhausted. He took several, you know, he took a lot of vacations. Uh, he was hospitalized several times for exhaustion. So I think that you know the demands on him were extraordinary. And he had to do a lot of this himself. He couldn't delegate it. He was running the organization. He was speaking, you know, hundreds of times a year to raise money. And he was expected to be the the, the face of the movement. It was incredibly exhausting. Have there been any movements after King's death that have used the principles that that he preached, both literally and figuratively, I guess, to create change in maybe America or even abroad? Well, of course, King didn't invent this um, kind of nonviolent protest. Um, it, it evolved, and certainly he was inspired tremendously by Gandhi. Um, but we've seen lots of movements emulate King and the civil rights activists. If you look at what's happened in this country around gay rights, just extraordinarily um, rapid uh, acceptance, you know, by historical standards. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that that the protesters have learned from people like King um, how to how to motivate, how to organize, and how to call attention to their issues. Jonathan, thank you so much. I mean, I could talk to you about this book for another hour. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it. You asked great questions, and uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. That was Jonathan Ike. His upcoming book is King a Life, which will be published on the 16th. hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with past episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, play our crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm.